We tend to hold the Apostle Paul up on a pedestal. But that is his struggle that he is relating to us. So let's uh, turn to the Gospel of John as we continue to work our way through this glorious Gospel. We'll be looking at the second half of chapter 1 today. Last week we worked our way through uh, 34 verses. We'll pick it up in verse 35. So here we are on the next day. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Philip said, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Oh, Father God, I pray that you will help me to convey the truths, just some of the truths that you want your people to hear today. Help me, help me. Amen. Earl Palmer is an author and former pastor, and he wrote concerning people's fear in sharing Jesus. He wrote this. When California's Milpitas High School Orchestra attempts Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the results are appalling. You might ask, why bother? Why inflict on those poor kids the terrible burden of trying to render what the immortal Beethoven had in mind? 
Not even the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra can attain that perfection. My answer is this, he writes. The Mopitis High School Orchestra will give some people in that audience the only encounter of Beethoven's great Ninth Symphony. Far from perfection, it is nonetheless the only way they will hear Beethoven's message. God calls each of us to share the gift of Jesus Christ we've been given. For many of us, we don't share because of the fear of botching it, of stuttering our way through the gospel, of forgetting parts of the gospel, whatever reason you have. But we are all called by obedience to God and love for people to go and tell. And that really is what the first imperative of this section is. It's to go and tell. That's what we see here with the first disciples, isn't it? We see here with John the Baptist. He says, look, the Lamb of God, go. He was saying, go. He was telling them to go. With Andrew in verse 41, we see this. It says, the first thing Andrew did, the first thing Andrew did when he realized who Jesus was, when he realized the gift of Jesus was to go and tell. And then Philip, in verse 45, we see he sought out Nathanael and told him. He went and he told. The very challenging and convicting truth that this passage puts before us today is people that believe in Jesus go and tell. People that believe in Jesus, go and tell. It's very simple. That's the pattern John sets in his gospel from the very beginning. And that's the pattern that we'll see borne out throughout the gospel. People that realize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Forgiver, the lover of your soul, as somebody prayed, they go and tell. That's what we see time and time again through the Gospels, through the book of Acts. Peter entering the temple with that beggar. He says, you know, gold and silver I do not have, but what I have I give to you. He went and he told. Philip the Evangelist with the Ethiopian eunuch, he, he heard him reading Isaiah 53. And, you know, that's a beautiful passage because it says that he, he got near. He was preparing to tell what he was reading, to explain that. Paul to the known world. That's what the book of Acts is displaying. He realized who Jesus was, and he went, oh, I've got to tell everybody. That's what Christian history is full of. Christian history is a go-and-tell history. The missionaries from St. Patrick going to Ireland... To the modern age, William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Admiral Judson, they, they realized who Jesus was and they said, I've got to tell. To even this people that we support in this church, our missionaries, all those missionaries had that experience with Jesus, that encounter with Jesus, that realization. And they gave up everything and went. 
Let me remind you, the Bergens went to Austria, gave up everything and went to Austria to go and tell. The Phillipses are in Bangladesh, leaving here to go and tell. The Fosters in Mozambique have spent... I haven't even seen them. They haven't even come back to the States in my 12-year tenure here because they are so concerned to go and tell. The Palmeters at the college campus, the amazing perseverance and commitment to go and tell college students. The hymns in Cambodia, Pastor Enoch in Haiti, going and staying and telling. Evan Valeric being called to Peru to go and tell. The bonds in Namibia. Forsaking family to go and tell. See, when we understand who Jesus is and what he did for us, when we come to understand that Jesus actually takes on our sin, absorbs our sin, absorbs our punishment, takes our punishment, and he gives us his righteousness. It propels you to go and tell. When that sinks down deep here, in your mind, in your soul, when we realize that he shares his inheritance with us, we want to go and tell. That's the effect the gospel has on believers. That's the effect, guys. I'm haunted by a conversation I had probably five or six years ago at the door out here. People were leaving, people were leaving, and there was a guy standing there. And he approached me pretty much after most people had left, and he, and he asked me a question. And it's just stuck with me for years. And it's a really simple question, but it's a real clarifying question. I don't know what I was preaching on. I don't know what brought this question on. I probably was preaching on something similar today. And he asked me, can you, pastor, can you be a true believer and not share? Wow. That's one of those questions that brings instant clarity. Because if the answer is no, if, if what this text is, is implying is true, that when you, when you have an encounter with the real Jesus, you cannot but go and tell. That's a very convicting question. It's the kind of question that brings true clarity. Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 13 of his second letter, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. That's one of those examining questions. This is one of those tests that Paul is probably talking about. It's in the discovery group questions this week. When was the last time you shared the gospel? That's a very convicting question. Now, the purpose of that question and the purpose of this section of the sermon is not to create a congregation of doubters. It's not to create guilt mongerers. 
But if the pattern of scripture is go and tell, it bears asking the question, doesn't it? Do you share the gospel ever? Let me ask it another way. Do you have a desire to share the gospel? Is there that, that Holy Spirit urge from time to time? How about this way? Do you recognize, when you leave some conversations sometimes, do you recognize, I have missed an opportunity? Do you say those things? What about this perspective? Do you put all of your relationships in the context of sharing Christ? Do you befriend people with the purpose of getting to know them and loving them in order to share Christ in the context of that relationship? I want to tell you that that's not a bad motivation for getting to know somebody. There's a lot worse motivations out there. George Whitfield believed this to such an extent that he once said, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. And we say, oh, come on, Pastor, that's George Whitfield. One mark of a spirit-filled person is that they have a compulsion to tell. Pope John Paul II, and by the way, this is probably, this is the only time in 12 years that I've been here that I've quoted the Pope. Pope John Paul II said this, Every Christian, as he explores the historical record of Scripture and comes to a deep abiding faith, experiences that Christ is the risen one and that he is therefore the eternally living one. It is a deep, life-changing experience. No true Christian can keep it hidden as a personal matter. For such an encounter with the living God cries out to be heard. That's spot on, guys. When you have a true encounter with Christ, when you realize who he is and what he has done, it creates in you, like I said, a compulsion to show. You'll be like the first disciples here. You'll be like Andrew. The first thing he did is he went to his brother. You'll be like Philip. I'm going to seek out Nathaniel, my friend. And tell him. It'll be like John the Baptist. Look, go, follow him. He's the Lamb of God. Well, I think that that's the first effect we have when we encounter the real Jesus. But the second effect is to follow me. To go and tell and follow me. Notice in verse 43 of our text, Jesus, the next day, decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Jesus asked Philip to follow him. Jesus is the only person in this text that asks a person to follow me. Follow me. Follow my pattern. Where I go, you go. Where I lead, you you go. And this is the second template for a true believer. 
That's the imperative that Jesus turned to his disciples one day and said, as our memory verse tells us, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, following Jesus means that our lives as believers should begin to look like his. Our choices should become more and more progressively the choices that he made. Our lives should slowly and progressively become, as we have said, cross-shaped. There should be, when people look at you, a hint of the cross in your life. That's what happens when the Spirit takes up residence in you. As you become, start to become to look like him. And there's one of the problems that I see many times in, when we do go and tell. Is that we, we either unintentionally or sometimes intentionally imply a kind of follow me type of evangelism. We point to our own moral perfections and say, see, look, look at me. When the pattern in scripture is, no, no, look at him, follow him. We need to be so crystal clear here. The first and foremost thing that we are to do is to point away from ourselves. It's Jesus. It's his life, not mine. It's his perfection, not mine. It's his humility, not mine. Look at his sacrifice, not what I'm sacrificing. And yet, and I also want to be so, so careful here. And yet, there is a part of our witness that is our lives. A part. Paul told the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, we should not be people, we should not be asking people to follow our pattern, but to watch for the pattern of Christ in our lives. It's not a follow me, but it is a watch me. I'm struck by uh, D.A. Carson, what he wrote in one of his books. Uh, He's a professor and theologian and author. He tells of a time as an undergraduate that he was part of this evangelistic Bible study group and and uh, he w- was uh, talking to this guy named Dave, and he couldn't get anything across to him. So he did what a lot of people do. He brought him to the Bible study leader. And so this young man was brought before the Bible study leader, Dave, uh, the Bible study leader. And this is what Dave said, the skeptic. He said, I came from a family that doesn't believe in a literal resurrection and all that stuff. That's a bit much for us. But we're a fine family, a good church-going family. We're a stable family. So what have you got that I don't have? What would you say? Well, Dave looked at the young man and said, Watch me. Move in with me. I've got a spare couch. Move in with me for three months and watch my life. 
See how I behave. That's important to me, Dave, he said to Dave. What I do with my time, the way I talk. You watch me, and at the end of three months, tell me if there's no difference. The young man didn't take Dave up on the offer, but he did begin coming back and back, and, and uh, D.A. Carson says that eventually this young man became a Christian and went on to become a medical missionary. But Carson inclu- uh, D.A. Carson concludes this. What he learned from Dave's challenge was, a Christian is saying, in effect, I'm one poor beggar telling another poor beggar how to find bread. I drank deeply from the wellspring of grace. God knows I need more of it. If you watch me, you'll see some glimmers of the Savior. And ultimately, that'll lead you to want to follow him. There is a watch me element to our witness. Because if the Spirit indeed dwells within you, there will be change. There will be Romans 12.1 type of transformation. There will be. There will be Galatians 5 fruit hanging on your tree that is visible. There will be a credible change for us to observe. But, and this is a big but, our tendency is to ask people to look for the wrong things. Our tendency is to point to our lives in wrong ways. We usually are pointing, like I said earlier, to our moral perfection. Look at how, look at what Jesus has done. He's made, he's given me victory over this area. And that might be true. But to ask a person to watch for your moral perfection is to ask somebody to look for Jesus Christ's life and not your own. And it's a recipe for disaster, I think. We also ask people to look at our life circumstances. Look, look at the ease of life with which God has, what God has given me. Look at the blessings God has given me, which, quite frankly, has more to do with your desire than God's desire for you. Or we say, look at my self-control, which if they could hear what we think, they would know instantly we have none. Or we say, look at how much happier we are, which Jesus himself said is not the point of this life. Happiness is not the goal in this life, guys. Contentment in circumstances, yes. Happiness, not so much. No, we can and should ask people to watch us, but make it clear what they are watching for, the shape of the cross. Make it clear. And here's a start on what the shape of the cross should look like in your life. What people should be watching for. A desire to live righteously. Not that I am living righteously, but a desire to live righteously. Romans 7, in our reading today, Paul wrote about it himself, didn't he? For I have the desire to do what is good. But then he followed it up with what? I can't do it. But I have the desire. See, when you're spirit-filled, when you're actually a regenerate believer, there's a desire to obey the law. 
It doesn't mean I'm working, I'm doing, look at me, God. It's just a desire to please God. Here's another thing that you should ask people to look for. Not only the desire to live righteously, but the humility to recognize when you don't. Romans 7 again. I have the desire. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. What I want to do, I do not do. That which I hate, I do. Paul is laying it out there. And by the way, guys, if you really want to to winsomely persuade people to Christ, it's not by saying, look at how great I am and what God has done. It's by saying, I still need Jesus every day in a deep, deep way. That's what Paul is saying. It really is a repentant lifestyle. Another thing that you should ask people to look for is a priority of others. Is there a priority of others in your life? Do you consider others better than yourself? Do you look to serve one another horizontally here? When those emails come out, almost on a weekly basis, it seems, about the needs that we have in the community, but also within our own body. Do you, get, do you sit up in your chair and say, this is great, opportunity to serve? Because that's all we're doing here is giving opportunities to serve. Opportunities to show your priority of others. And then finally, your priority of Christ. You want a real cross shape to be, to be seen by others? Prioritize Christ in your lives. The calling of the disciples shows us this. They left everything forever. (laughs) You know, Peter left a great fishing business. Boom. He doesn't call everybody to do that. But what that is showing us is my orbit is now around Christ. That's the gravitational pull that has pulled me away from orbiting the world. When people watch us, they should see the priority we place on Christ, our Christ-centeredness. So, I ask you, have you ever invited anybody to watch your life? Not follow you, but watch. How about asking a fellow brother or sister? Just for accountability. Watch for the cross shape in my life. Tell me what you see. Would they see the outline of the cross in your life? The third effect of an encounter with the real Jesus is a come and see. Go and tell, follow me, come and see. That's what we see Andrew doing here with bringing Peter to Jesus. Did you hear it? Come and see. <laughs> just, yeah, just bring, he brought him to Jesus. That's what we see Philip doing with Nathaniel. Can anything good come from that? Come and see. Can't you? Come on. That's the pattern that Jesus establishes in verse 39 you know, with Andrew and that other mysterious disciple. Maybe John, maybe not. Come and see. 
what are you doing following me? You know, what do you want? Come and see. Stay with me. And what we, they are, he's inviting them to come and see. Come and see what? Come and see the only way from earth to heaven. Come and see the only way out of the pit that we're in. What do I mean? Well, let's look at verse 47 together. Because this is where Nathaniel comes in. Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And when Jesus sees Nathaniel approaching, he says to him, Here is a true Israelite. In him there is nothing false. I mean, the literal translation of that is, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. There is no deceit. Remember Jacob, how deceitful he was? There is no Jacob in this person. Nathaniel questions Jesus. He says, how do you know me? Jesus answered with the omniscience. He gives him an omniscient answer. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. That insight sparks faith. And that's what Nathaniel says next. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. But then Jesus goes on to say something very enigmatic in verse 50. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, verse 51, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Woo, what is Jesus doing there? Why put that in there? Nathaniel's got it. What is Jesus telling Nathaniel? What does Christ want Nathaniel and others around him to know and us to know for all history? Well, in the late 60s, there was a rumor that Paul McCartney was dead. I don't know if you remember that. It arose because apparently there was a hidden message on one of their songs called Revolution Number no. 9 that if you played it backwards, if you, uh, kids, hang with me, you, ha- you had a, a record and it was spinning and you could actually stop the record and push it backwards and apparently on that song it mentioned that Paul was dead. This method was called backmasking, and it was a technique to embed a hidden message. In a way, Jesus is backmasking here. He is referencing back to Genesis 28, a story you and I know pretty well. It's about Jacob stealing the birthright from Esau. And then sending, his mother sends him out, and actually his father sends him out too, after he realizes what he did. And he's traveling to his uncle Laban's house, and one night he stops to rest, and he has a dream. And the dream is that he sees a stairway or a ladder to heaven, from earth to heaven. And he sees angels going up and down that ladder, And at the top of the ladder is Yahweh, God. And he woke up and he named that place Bethel, house of God. 
What Jesus is saying to Nathanael as he's drawing out Genesis 28, he's saying, listen, Nathanael. He might even be going into Nathanael's mind and, and talking about what he was thinking about under the fig tree. We're not told. But he's saying, listen, Genesis 28, that's about me. I am the ladder. I am the stairway that reaches from heaven to earth. I am the way to God. Why is it so critical for you and for me to say to our friends, our family, our acquaintances, almost anybody that we run into, come and see, come and see, come and see? Because Jesus is the only ladder. It's the only one. That's how critical it is. That's why the Spirit puts in us that urge that we stifle so many times, guys, right? Come on, somebody shake your head, because I am. We stifle so many times, because the Spirit is saying, it's the only way. might be the only symphony they hear. The only way out. And he, he urges us to share it. Aldous Huxley. Some of you know him as the author of Brave New World, that utopian novel. He was a staunch agnostic as well. And he once spent a weekend at a party at somebody's house. And, and it came along Sunday and most people, all the people wanted to go to church. And, and Huxley didn't want to go to church. And so he approached this young man and he said, listen, will you stay here? And he, and he kind of wanted to get out of going to church. And so he said, will you stay here and, and will you just explain to me uh, the gospel and why Jesus is so important to you? He saw this as a way of getting out of church and he could just listen to this and be done with it. And the man responded to Huxley and said, I, I can't do that. You would demolish my arguments in a minute. I know who you are. I know your mind. And Huxley said, I don't want to argue with you. Just simply tell me what Christ means to you. And the man agreed and stayed and told Huxley the simple gospel that each and every person ever born is born with a huge problem, born in a deep pit that they can't get out of, that they are dead in their sins and transgressions, and there's nothing that anybody can do, and that there's no way out, but that God provided a way out through Jesus Christ, that God lowered the ladder into the pit, came from heaven to earth, and is the only way out of the pit. The only way. And then by believing in him, by trusting that ladder, by looking at that ladder and trusting that ladder and climbing onto that ladder, that you and your sins are forgiven that you have a relationship with God and that you're able to get out of the pit. When he had finished, there were tears in Huxley's eyes. And then he said, I would give my right hand to believe in that. 
You see, what touched Huxley's heart was not the arguments, but genuine faith expressed by someone who knew who Jesus was and was willing to tell him, come and see. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your son and for lowering him down to us. Giving us the only way out. Lord, help us to be the type of people that please you by just saying, come and see. In Jesus' name, amen.